Amen. What a time of worship, just exalting the name of our Savior, singing that we are saved, 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 all by His work, all by His doing. And beloved, as we think about the series we've been discussing here about evangelism, that's the desire of our heart, is that every person that's in our family, every person that is our friend, every person that's in this community, that they could sing that song and it would be genuine and real from their heart. They could sing, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. And that's the desire of our heart as we are going through this series on framework for our evangelism. If you have your Bible, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 tonight. As you turn there, you know, just to walk quickly back through where we've been, what we're looking at, because this all ties together as we look at this uh, over the last three or four messages. Hopefully it's become very clear to all of us what our mission is. Our mission, while God has left us here because we can do our worship of him much better in heaven, we can work for him much better in heaven because we'll be glorified, But the one thing we can't do is witness for Christ and witness for him with the mission of making disciples of Christ. Making disciples of Christ of of all the nations. And as we do that, we saw this morning, what's our message? The message we come to declare to someone, to share with someone, to explain to someone the gospel that centers on the person of Jesus That you could summarize if you wanted to, that it is about Christ crucified. And as we go out with that message, we know that we are trusting in the means that God has given us, the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And as we think about this, I don't know that I tied it together as much this morning, but when you think about the means and the method, they really go together. The means is the Spirit and the Scriptures. If you recall, the methods God has given us is prayer and proclamation. And they go together because as we are desiring for the Spirit of God to be involved in this activity of winning lost sinners, our aspect, our part there is prayer. As we pray and we want the Spirit to move. And when we think about the Scriptures being the other uh, means that we have available to us, that's where we come in with the method of proclamation. That is, we, we proclaim it with our lips, but we also can proclaim it with our lives. But that's because the Word of God is working in our life to such an extent that people look at our lives and we are just uh, showing the beauty of Christ. We are adorning the gospel of Christ. And that's all a part of working together on our mission of seeing people becoming disciples of Christ. So as so we set out to do this, tonight I want us to take a moment, well, more than a moment, but I want us to take some time tonight to think about as we do this, what I deem or call or refer to as the marriages in our evangelism and the measurements of our evangelism. The measurements and the marriages of our evangelism. I had you turn here to 2 Corinthians 6, and we'll begin in a moment in verse 14. 
By the marriages in our evangelism, beloved, what I mean by that is those that we, we partner with, those that we go to share the gospel with, and this would even apply not just to our witnessing, but even our worshiping, our, our working for the cause of Christ. Those that we will come alongside in, in proclaiming the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, the gospel of good news, of salvation, the forgiveness of sins through Christ alone. And we're going to find as we go through God's word that the scriptures, again, they're not silent about this very issue. And the principle I want you to see as we look here at these closing verses of chapter 6 in 2 Corinthians is this. The first and the foremost principle or question then you should ask yourself and those that we join in 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 marriage and evangelism is this. Are we all on the same team? Are we on the same team? And by team, I don't mean are we all of the same denomination. It has nothing to do with whether or not they're Baptist or Southern Baptist or any other kind of Baptist that you can think of. Because what Paul here is addressing as we look at this, it is those who are either on the same team, that is, they're they're of true salvation, and they're going to proclaim that same message of salvation. Notice what he says there, verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and separate, says the Lord, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here, he's really speaking here about ministry, and he's saying that there there can't be this binding together between really believers and unbelievers, and by that what I'm saying then is, is that as we go out to proclaim the gospel, that we're all on the same team. Now that's the primary principle that he is, he's driving home here. Because if you stop and you think about it, just think about the activity of witnessing. If I'm going out with someone to witness for the cause of Christ and we're going over to the, the, the neighbor's house over here and we're knocking on their door and we're here to share the gospel with them and I'm there with someone and I'm there to share the gospel with them and they have a different gospel, I don't need to be sharing the gospel with them, I need to be sharing the gospel to them. They're needing to understand the true meaning of Christ and coming to Christ. You say, well, what is the fundamental thought when you think about that? There are the the particulars of that. Well, you can sum it up like this. That you're, you're joining with those who have that same understanding about the nature of God. The triune nature of God. You're joining in with those who have that same understanding of Jesus. By Jesus, I mean the person of Jesus. That is, they they proclaim and they teach and they affirm the deity of Christ. They, They proclaim and they teach and they affirm the humanity of Christ. As we looked at the message this morning, how important that is. And just to show you an example of that, if you turn down your Bible for just a moment, go over to the book of 1 John towards the end of... God's Word. And then 1 John, we'll pick it up for a moment. In 1 John, let's look at chapter 2 for a moment. 
In 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and that is you have the Holy Spirit. And you all know, I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Verse 22, who is the liar? The liar is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Denying that Jesus is the Christ, beloved, an implication to that is someone that would deny that Jesus is actually God. If he's the Christ, it also would be denying in some sense his humanity. Look over in chapter 4 of 1 John. Verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do you remember this morning when we read from uh, 2 Corinthians that, that Paul was writing to the church at Corinth there and he was concerned because someone was coming with a different spirit? Notice here, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And just think about it now, this was in John's day. It hasn't gotten better. It's gotten worse. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. Again, here we've seen chapter 2 referring to the deity of Christ. Now we're referring to the humanity of Christ. This is why he's saying test to make sure they have a right understanding of the person of Jesus, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. But also, beloved, when we have a right understanding of Jesus, it would also bring us to that provision. But really, we're just walking back through that gospel message. They have the same gospel message of the person of Jesus and even the provision of Jesus. That is that they wholeheartedly believe and agree and affirm and are going to practice in their evangelism that they believe a person is saved by the work of Christ alone on the cross. No other way. This is what they're going to proclaim. This is what they're going to teach. This is what they're going to accept. Christ alone. Remember, that's why Paul got so upset. He got so upset with Peter there in the churches there in Galatia when he was writing to them. Why? Because he was distorting that truth. He was distorting the truth that you are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. That the way he was doing some things, his life was beginning to communicate that you could actually be saved by somehow by circumcision or by the works of the law. And Paul said, no, Peter, that's not true. And so that's why he was willing to publicly confront him about that. The person of Christ, the provision of Christ. And then finally, what we talked about this morning, the path of Christ, that, that repentant faith of turning from your sins and putting your faith in Christ alone. This is the message. That when we join with those, that they're going to be those that are Adhering to this message. Because this is the gospel message. This is the saving gospel. This is the gospel that has the power of God unto salvation. This is the gospel that they must believe. And they must be proclaiming. Beloved, this is the... 
kind of the applications we think through this first principle? Or are we all on the, on the same team? But let me give you a second principle that I think it's important to recognize as well as we kind of walk through this. And I would say, do they have the same authority? And by that, I mean, is Scripture their authority? Is it what's going to drive them as they go about proclaiming the gospel? Are they going to be faithful to it? Are they going to be faithful to the word of God when it comes to their mission in evangelism, when it comes to their, their means and methods, as they're, as they're just looking to the word of God? Is this what's going to drive them? Because you see, beloved, here's the thing as we think about this. The Bible does not say that I can't go to work somewhere out in the world for someone who's not a believer. There's no, there's no sin in that. There's no sin if I'm working for a man or a woman who's not a believer. There's no sin if I'm working around people who aren't believers and I work with people who aren't believers. There's no, there's no sin. There's nothing wrong in the sense if you're involved in ministry, or not in ministry, but you're involved in, in work and in business and the different things that you may do that's going to have you to be involved in some ways with folks who aren't on the same page as you in regards to um, salvation and understanding of Christ when it comes to your business. The Bible doesn't say I even have to go to a Christian doctor. I don't have to go to a Christian hospital. Now, it's nice to have a, a hospital that would be founded by Christians. It's, it's wonderful if I have a Christian doctor that, who's trusting in the Lord, but I don't think it's sin for someone to be involved with, in some ways with that. I don't think it's wrong if someone is playing on a team in a sport and other things with, with folks who aren't believers. The Bible doesn't speak to that in that way. But what this, because what Paul was speaking to in 2 Corinthians 6 is that joining together and that ministerial type of endeavors for the cause of the gospel of Christ, that's where he says you're not supposed to be bound together. That's what he's speaking to there. And we see this being practiced even by Jesus. You see it being practiced and promoted by Paul. You see it being practiced and promoted by John. Here's how Jesus practices and promoted it. If you look over and think back in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus began his ministry, and he began his ministry and he's there in a synagogue, and Jesus is able to do a miracle there and he's teaching, and there is a demon, there is a man that is demon-possessed there, and that demon begins to speak through this man. Over in Luke chapter 4. And when he's speaking through this man, Jesus quiets the demon and casts him out. Now the demon is actually crying out things that are true about Jesus. Saying he's the Holy One of God. But Jesus does not want to be associated with a demon or a demon-possessed man. He, that's not, he's not going to join together with him. He's not going to say, well, hey, that's the truth, so as long as the truth's going forward, no. Jesus shuts that down immediately. Paul does the same thing over in Acts chapter 16 that we studied a few weeks ago when he was the founding of that church. Remember, there was a girl there that was under the spirit of divination and that she was, the demon was actually saying things that were true about Jesus and Paul shuts that down. He doesn't want to be associated with that. Or, turn over to 
to 2 John for a moment. To 2 John. Second John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Notice what he tells them, verse 8. Watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Okay? And the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him. Don't receive him into your house and do not even give him a greeting. You express nothing towards him that says we are welcoming of your message. Because that message he says there is actually of the Antichrist and it's actually denying who Jesus is. It's denying a, a fundamental tenet of the gospel. Now you got to remember in their day, I mean, as there, there is little churches, there are people traveling around. And again, we have to keep this in context for, for the day of John because they didn't have a full New Testament. The Bible, the New Testament is still being written. It's still being put together at this point. So they can have an itinerant preacher just show up on the scene and say, I'm here to preach the gospel. But then he gets up there and he starts preaching and he starts denying that Jesus was even here in the flesh or denying that Jesus was the Christ. And he was saying, John was saying, don't welcome that man into your church and into your ministry. Don't do that. Because if someone goes too far and they don't abide in the teaching of Christ, there is the teaching of Christ. It's the teaching we've been talking about. John was saying, you're not to be a part of that. But now let's keep this in perspective. Because as I say, this is not saying that we need to join our little tribes. Because, look over in the Gospel of Luke for a moment. To Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Verse 49 and 50. John the Apostle comes to Jesus and says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. That is, he's not a part of our little group. And because he's not a part of our little group, he's saying, we, we tried to prevent him from doing something that you call on us to do. And Jesus said to him, don't hinder him. For he who is not against you is with you. He's for you. I think that's a valuable lesson. You see, boy, there can be folks out there that can have differences on certain things. They may have differences about church government. They have, may have differences about eschatology. They may have differences in, in uh, 
certain aspects of even of baptism or things like that. But beloved, when it comes down to it, the question is, are they teaching, are they practicing the preaching of the true gospel of Christ? If they are, then they are with us and gathering in disciples. If they're not, then they're against us. See, that's what Jesus was saying. Just because they weren't following along exactly with them on everything at that point, he was saying, look, they're actually with you. They're not against you. Let me give you another example of that. Something we'll actually think about again here when we get back into the book of Philippians. Go over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This is a very interesting statement that Paul makes here. Philippians chapter 1. Paul wants them to know in verse 12 that his circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So he's talking about here, verse 14, he's saying the brethren are speaking the word of God without fear. But now there's some different groups within that group. Some, he says in verse 15, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Now this goes to their motives. But some also from goodwill. The latter, that is those who are preaching it from goodwill, are doing it out of love, knowing that I have been appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, that is those who are preaching it out of envy and strife, are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambitions. They have selfish reasons. It's not from a pure motive. And they think by doing this, they're going to cause me some type of distress while I'm in my imprisonment. But notice Paul's reaction to it in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether it's in pretense or it is in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And if Christ is proclaimed, in this I will rejoice. Do you see what he's saying there? Well, how could he do that? How could he still rejoice though there were some men that were there speaking the word of God from selfish ambitions out of envy and out of strife towards Paul and others? How could he be so rejoicing in that? It's because, beloved, when you go back to the things that we've been looking at, they were still preaching the same message. They were still using the same method. They were preaching Christ. That's what he knew. If they're preaching Christ, then there's the Spirit of God and the Scriptures of God that can bring about the true salvation in folks' life. That's why Paul could still be excited in that sense. Now, that doesn't mean he was excusing their sin because they were in sin. But Christ, he knew that Christ was being proclaimed. And if Christ is being proclaimed then Paul could still rejoice. So you see, Paul, when they think about this, he he just wanted Christ proclaimed. Because again, as I said, Paul just had such confidence in the Spirit of God. He had such confidence in the Word of God, the power of the Gospel. So he knew if they were genuinely proclaiming Christ, there would be the opportunity 
for folks who were truly hearing that message to truly put their faith in Christ. And Paul was encouraged by that. He was encouraged by it. So, beloved, just understanding this, we're drawing this together about the marriages that we have in our evangelism. Let me let, look with you at one other point. I call it the measuring of our evangelism. By that is, how do we evaluate it? How do we look to the principles of Scripture and try to biblically evaluate our evangelism? Well, let me just say to you, the primary measuring stick, the primary measuring stick for our evangelism is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Turn, if you will, for a moment over to 2 Timothy Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, Paul here seems to be coming to the close of his life, potentially. He's writing to young Timothy who's in the ministry. And he just wanted to encourage him to fulfill his ministry, keep, remain faithful. Verse 5. Well, let's just go back for a moment. He charges him in verses 1 and 2 to preach the word. And he says, and you've got to do it even when it's in season, out of season, when it's acceptable, when it's unacceptable, when it's popular, when it's unpopular. In verse 3, because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they want to have their ears tickled. They want to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they'll turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That may be what they, they are doing, but he says, but you... Timothy, you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Just fulfill your ministry, be faithful. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. This is what he's encouraging Timothy. Timothy, you may come across some hard times, some difficult times, some difficult days as you're there to be a minister for the gospel of Christ, as you're just here to be a believer uh, for the gospel of Christ and live where you live and work where you work and, and, and do what you do. Now understand there can be difficult times, but just be sober in all of it. Endure the hardship. Fulfill your ministry and being a, do the work of an evangelist and just keep the faith. Fight the good fight. Finish your course. That's what God calls on us to do. Faithful. Here's what God's going to... The evaluation that God will have of your evangelism and of my evangelism and of our evangelism as a church will be this. Have we been faithful to the mandate? We have been mandated by God to go. Am I being faithful to that? Have I been faithful to the mission? The mission of making disciples. Am I being faithful to the message? Am I being faithful to the means? Am I being faithful to the methods? Am I being faithful to these marriages that we were talking about? Am I just being faithful? You see, beloved, we evaluate it in that way, in that faithfulness. Because... To, to evaluate it in other ways is to, is to, to put undue pressure sometimes on things that, that really don't go with the, the word of God. Do you remember the parable of the souls? 
where Jesus tells that parable of the sower who goes out and sows the seed. And he talks about there's four different responses to the, to the, to the seed. And he's, he's talking about that's really, in some sense, evangelism. The sower is the believer who's going out and sowing the seed. And he said some of it lands on a hard road and it's eaten up. Some of it lands on some shallow surface. doesn't have much topsoil that is there. And it doesn't take much for the sun to come up and just like that, it withers as well. Some of it lands among the thorns. And when it lands among the thorns, it seems to spring up like it's going to really be something, but eventually the things of the world choke it out. But some land in the good soil. And when it lands in the good soil, guess what? It produces. But notice something. It's the same sower. It's the same seed. The only thing that's different in those four occasions is the soil. I don't have any control over the soil in that sense. You don't have any control over the soil. You have control over being the sower. You have control over delivering the right seed of the gospel. I can control that. That is, I can control whether or not I'm going to be following the mandate, the mission, the means, the message, the methods, the marriages. I can control that. I can't control how that person is going to respond to it. Now, how I can be involved with that is, is that I know it's the Spirit of God, and I know it's the Word of God that the Spirit's going to use, so that's why we go back to, I'm going to be praying and praying for situations and praying for that sinner that God will be working in their heart and preparing them for the gospel, to hear the true gospel that I'm going to deliver to them, and knowing that God can help bring about salvation in their life, and pray that, oh Lord, open their eyes that they may truly put their faith in you. This is why we measure it according to our faithfulness. But now, there is an aspect, and I call it the secondary measuring stick, which it is, we look at the fruit. The fruit. But as we think about even the fruit, we're, we're thinking about how are we making disciples? That's the fruit that we're looking for. How are we making disciples? But here's why, even as I say, thinking about the fruit that's coming, it's secondary, it's not primary, just faithfulness is primary because of these two truths. One, there are going to be defectors. Okay? There are going to be defectors. It happened in the ministry of Jesus. It happened in his ministry. If you will, turn over to the Gospel of John for a moment, to John chapter 6. Turn over to the Gospel of John. Jesus has performed a miracle. A lad who had five barley loaves and two fish. And he's been able to miraculously to use that to feed thousands. And so because of that, there are folks that are starting to follow him. There are even some that are seeming to believe in him. But notice what happens in verse 60. Therefore, verse 60, many of his disciples, 
when they heard that, they said, this is just too difficult a statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh, it profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in our life. But there are some of you who really don't believe. You see, here is Jesus going about by the power of God, performing miracles by the power of God, speaking with such authority, and he's drawing these large crowds, and there are people who are even identifying with him as his disciples. And yet, when we get to the end of this, what you're going to find out in verse 36, that as a result of this, many of his disciples, not a few, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They defected. Now, I'm not going to say that Jesus was a bad evangelizer. Jesus was the perfect evangelizer. He knew what his mission was. He knew what his message was. He knew what the means were. He he understood that. Look over in chapter 8 for a moment. Go over to John chapter 8. Verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him. Now notice who he's talking to. He's, believe, he's speaking to people who have, in some ways, believed in him. Notice what he says. If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. It's like he's laying it down there to them. If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. Go back and think back to what we were just reading over in the Gospel of John in chapter 6. They would not continue in his word. Therefore, they weren't really true disciples of his. If you follow along this whole path and this discussion that Jesus begins to have with him, notice now how this ends in verse 59. It ends with these people who said they believed in him in verse 59, picking up stones to throw at him. So Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus had defectors. Paul had defectors. There's a man by the name of Demas that he makes reference to that he said abandoned him and really abandoned the faith to, to go and pursue the things of the world. The Apostle John spoke about defectors over in 1 John chapter 2 where he says they went out from us because they were not really ever of us because if they had been of us they would have remained with us but they demonstrated they weren't. Peter dealt with a defector. Right there immediately a man by the name of Simon, who it says it seems to have believed in God and believed in Christ, but yet as things unfolded very quickly there, he began to demonstrate that he did not have true salvation. There were defectors. Not only that, beloved, think about this. Just think about the idea that also there's just, not because of the defectors, because there's just some difficult times that in difficult places that God calls people. I think about the prophet Jeremiah, who God called to a stubborn people. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel. 
I mean, how encouraging it is for God to say, I'm raising you up. I'm raising you up as a prophet. Go speak and go speak to the people I want you to speak to. Oh, and let me tell you up front, they're stubborn, they're rebellious, and they're not going to listen to what you have to say. They're going to rebel against it. I think about a man by the name of William Carey, an amazing missionary. He spent seven years in the same place without one convert. And throughout that time, he suffered in death. He suffered diseases. He suffered the death of loved ones. Yet he was faithful. So when we think about the fruit, we're, we're thinking about is there the fruit of faithfulness, but is also the fruit of just making disciples. Making disciples. Beloved, maybe just to help you understand that, just think about that is in this way that as we look at evangelism and we look at, as you go out to tell people about Jesus, and maybe it's somebody in your family, maybe it's some of your friends, people you work with, and you're, you're telling them about Christ and, and they don't respond well to it. They, they reject the message of what you're sharing. Well, I don't see yourself as a failure. Have you been faithful? Were you faithful to the mandate? Yes. Were you faithful to the message of the true gospel? Were you faithful to the means? You were faithful to the method of proclaiming the gospel to this family member, this friend? You say, well, then should I should just say, okay, okay, that's great. I was faithful. The Lord's pleased. That's all I need to do. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to think any more about it. No. I think there's a balance to it. And I think there's a balance to it even in our church and our churches that in some sense yes we look and say have I been faithful and have I been faithful then that's what God has called me to be and to do but when we don't see fruit in the sense of people coming genuinely to Christ and we don't see people being made disciples of Christ that should have an effect on us that should break our heart you see, on one side, we can go too far this way. I, I, again, you heard me quoting this morning. I'm going to quote him to you again tonight, uh, Mr. Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher that w- the Lord seems to have used to, to lead uh, thousands to Christ. Now listen carefully to what he says and keep the balance of what he's saying because he's really, to me, honing in on this idea of how we measure our evangelism. He says, we do not consider soul winning to be accomplished by hurriedly inscribing more names upon our church roll." in order to show a good increase at the end of the year. This is easily done, and there are brethren who use great pains not to say arts to effect it, but if it be regarded as the alpha and omega of a minister's efforts, the result will be deplorable. By all means, let us bring true converts into the church, for it is a part of our work to teach them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded them. But still, this is to be done to disciples, not to mere professors. And if care be not used, we may do more harm than good at this point. To introduce unconverted persons to the church is to weaken and to degrade it, and therefore an apparent gain may be a real loss. But now notice what he says on the other side of this. He says, I'm not among those who decry statistics, nor do I consider that they are productive of all manner of evil, for they do much good if they are accurate and if men use them lawfully. 
How is it he's going to describe here how to use them lawfully? He says by this, it's a good thing for people to see the nakedness of the land. To see the nakedness of the land through statistics of decrease. That they may be driven on their knees before the Lord to seek prosperity. And on the other hand, it is by no means an evil thing for workers to be encouraged by having some account of results set before them. I should be very sorry if the practice of adding up and deducting and giving in the net result were to be abandoned, for it must be right to know our numerical condition. Do you see how he's, he's thinking about that? He's thinking about that, I think, according to the principles that we've been laying out here. That on one hand, beloved, we're not in the business of trying just to get folks somehow some type of decision and inscribe on our church role. What we're here to do is to make disciples of Christ. But when we don't see people coming to Christ, he said that should drive you to your knees because you know they're lost people. You know there are lost people that gather here, especially on Sunday morning. You know there are lost people here. You know there are people in need of Christ. You know there are a lot of people in need of Christ and salvation in this community right here. You know it is. And you know where they're going to go. You know that if they die without Christ, you know they're going to go to the eternal lake of fire. You know that. So thus, if we're not seeing people come to Christ, there should be, as he says, a driving to our knees to seek the Lord for prosperity. And that's not talking about financial prosperity. That's talking about the prosperity of saved souls, that people are genuinely coming to Christ. Our hearts should be broken. Jeremiah was referred to as the weeping prophet. Why? Because of the condition of the people. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Why? Because he knew of their spiritual condition. He knew what was about to come upon them. The Apostle Paul says over in the book of Romans that if he could actually be accursed from God, accursed from Christ, so that his brethren, his Jewish brethren, could somehow come to the true saving knowledge of Christ, he would do it. I mean, his heart is broken. Beloved, we need to be as the great preacher John Knox was, who said, give me Scotland or I die. It should be, oh Lord, give me my family member. Give me this person I'm praying for. Give us this community. Beloved, if you want to set a numerical goal, here's the goal. Lord, we pray that every single person that's in the path and the sphere of our influence knows Christ. We want them all to know Christ. This is the passion of what he's sharing here. And let me just close with a quote from a great preacher many years ago. He said, quote, Our families, our schools, our congregations, not to speak of our cities at large and our land and our world, might well send us daily to our knees. For the loss of even one soul is terrible beyond conception. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered the heart of man what a soul in hell must suffer forever. Lord, give us the bowels of mercies. What a mystery. The soul and eternity of one man is depending on the voice of another. You see, beloved, we do know this. 
Yes, there are the means that are there of the spirit and of the scripture, but guess what? The Bible also says that they're not gonna have that faith can't come to them and understanding can't come to them unless somebody goes and tells them. And that's our calling. That's what God has called us to do. So, beloved, I hope that your heart, you think about your own life, and just ask yourself tonight, am I being faithful? Am I being faithful? And if you're being faithful and you're not seeing what you want to see, is your heart being broken? Are you truly broken over souls that are still on a path to an eternal destruction? Tonight, I want us to close our time uh, not just with a, a time of reflection. I want us to close our time with a time of prayer as a church.